Well, welcome. What a morning already. We want to continue doing what we always do, and that is opening up the Word of God together. I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, there's one probably close to you under a chair nearby uh, that you could pick up and use that. And if you find that you actually don't own a Bible, that can be our gift to you. Take it home, use it up, and come back next week (laughs) and hear more about God's Word. Uh, We want you to be in the Scriptures. Uh, This sermon and all sermons will be better if you have a copy in front of you and you can follow along. Uh, My aim is not to give you any wisdom that I have garnered throughout the years, but to try to unpack what God has already said in His Word. That is the point of preaching. And so we've been working through 1 Timothy. And we are now starting chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Now, if you've been here for the series, if you've been along for the ride, going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was serving in something like a church revitalization in a church in the city of Ephesus all those years ago, if you've been around, you might have been thinking this, hey, when's the sermon going to address me? (laughs) When's it going to have anything to do with my situation, my life. Uh, Maybe you felt that so much of the letter has been about leadership in the church, how the church ought to structure itself. And if you've caught onto that, well, you're right, because that's exactly what Paul was trying to do for Timothy, was to tell him how he ought to behave in the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. In chapter 3, we saw that Uh, You might have thought that it was only about church structure and church organization. I've done my best to try to show how it applies to all of us. But you might have been thinking, hey, when's it going to come to my life, my needs? When's the text going to help me live uh, from my uh, daily life? How's it going to address those issues? And if you've been sitting there waiting for that, well, it's your day because this sermon is about what is going on from your 9 to 5, Monday to Friday job. It has direct implications for how and why you work. If you have a job, if you're in the workplace, this is for you. It's, of course, for all of us because we all need all of God's Word. But this particularly has something to say to those people who are laboring in a job somewhere. I'm going to show you that this is very relevant for that situation. Uh, doing some research on this, trying to find some statistics for workplace, I found stress.org to be an interesting website. The American Institute of Stress actually exists, and they have all kinds of statistics about stress relating to work, or relating to the labor force. Uh, 80% of people feel stress in their workplace. Eight out of every ten people, when they're at work, are feeling some measure of stress. Now, you might identify with that. You might think that that's true based on the people that you're working with. They all feel stressed out. Further statistics make the picture even a little darker. 25% have felt like screaming in the workplace. And if you aren't one of the 25, 14% have felt like striking a coworker. 
These are odd statistics. I'm not sure why people admitted to this, but this is actually true. That there is stress in the workplace to the degree that people are willing to fight each other and scream at each other. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying that overall productivity is on the decline. What's interesting about that is with the advance of technology, uh, the smartphones that we all have, smarter ways of communication, more instant access to different ways of communication, supposedly we're supposed to be being more productive because of all the new technologies that we have that are aimed at helping us become productive are actually lessening the amount of work that actually gets done. You can maybe identify with that. Your phone that's supposed to make you more productive actually makes you more distractive. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Smarter tech isn't always helping. And so what we're getting in the workplace is the statistics, at least, are saying there's increased stress, there's decreased productivity, and one out of every ten person wants to hit their coworker. <laughs> this is a problem. Now, now, what's good about God's Word is that it has to address every area of our lives. It does. God is interested not in just what you do in this gathering. God is interested in what you do throughout your week in every facet of your life. If your life is a house, if you're to picture your life as a house, and there's a front door, and you go in, and there's this room, and there's that room, and there's this room, and there's that room, uh, sometimes we think of our lives like that where every area has its own room. I got my room over here, and that's my my home life. I got my room over here, and that's my work life. This is my spiritual life. This is my private life. This is my church life. And sometimes those things never cross over. And often we can think that what I am at church, what I am in private, or what I am uh, in my spiritual life has nothing to do with what I do when I'm at work. Now, God doesn't agree with that. Jesus will take the key to your life and go through, and if all your doors are locked, He will open all of them, and He says, I rule here. Uh, All of this is to be submitted to Jesus Christ, is it not? And so when Scripture addresses these various aspects that we might be tempted to think as not spiritual, we're forced to be confronted with the reality that it's all spiritual. It's all to be done for Him. It's all to be done for His glory. There are no keep-out signs on the doors of our life. Everything is part of His sovereign rule. And we submit ourselves to Him. As one theologian said, he said, Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! So Jesus says to you, not only this morning, But tomorrow morning and every week that you go to work and every other moment of your life, Jesus your Lord cries over your life, mine, over your work, mine. And it is our role as Christians to submit our lives to Him and recognize this is His and thus live our lives as worship to Him, Not only in song and not only on Sunday, but every day of the week and wherever He has us. With that as an introduction, let's look at the actual text. You're in 1 Timothy chapter 6 now, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2, and we're just going to camp in those verses for a while. Verse 1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants 
regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now here, in this text, we get some information about how Christians are to behave in the employer-employee relationship. Now before I get into this, I want to make something really clear. If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Come back next week. There's no place I'd rather have you be on a Sunday morning than in this room right now. But there's one thing you need to understand about what we're about to say is, is you might walk away from this thinking that being a Christian means you do good work, you have some honesty, you have that work ethic, you get some tips and tricks for how to honor your boss, and you walk out of here saying, oh, that's a good Christian thing, that's a good Christian tips, that's what Christianity is about, sweet, I can do this. Now, I want you to understand that there are going to be, as we look at this text, very clear pieces of wisdom and advice and help for how we ought to work, things we've got to think about as we go to work. But listen, there is a much deeper issue uh, at stake than simply how we work. There's a much deeper, there's a root issue that's underneath this, and you can actually see it because it surfaces at the very end of verse 1. I want to draw your attention to a phrase, a so that phrase. And if you see a so that phrase, you understand that he's talking about why something needs to happen. He's talking about regarding their masters as worthy. And then listen to this. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What he's saying is there's a way to work that could cause God's name to be reviled, and there's a way to work that will not cause God's name to be reviled. And the underlying implication of this is that people are to live in such a way that they glorify God in their work. And beyond that, in their lives. Do you see that? The underlying principle that all of Scripture always stands forth for us, sets forth for us, is that humanity was made to glorify God. That's why you were made. That's why you exist. All of us exist to bring God glory. We were created for Him. We were created to live in such a way that highlights His greatness out of worship and love. And even our jobs are meant to be treated this way, that we are worshiping Him in the way we work. But what is the Christian message? Listen, if you've thought the Christian message is simply do better, work harder, be a little more honest, show some integrity, I'm here to say that's Christian, but that's not fundamental. That's not the heart. There's an even different thing that's going on underneath the surface that's all throughout Scripture and it surfaces up right here. And the difference, that thing is this. Though we were all created to live and work and conduct our lives in a way that is worship to God, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. In other words, this text is about to call us to live in such a way that's worshiping God, and yet I'm here saying none of us can do that. 
And none of us have done that. And the Christian message is this. We have all failed in living lives that are worshiper, worshipful to God. We are, as the Bible will go on to say, we are guilty before a holy God. God in His perfect holiness and perfect justice would be good and right to condemn humanity for their sin. God is righteously angry with sinners who do not repent. And yet, and yet, the good news of the Gospel is this. That though we are undeserving, though we could not worship God the way we were supposed to, though that our guilt is such to the degree that God will punish sinners for their sin, the amazing thing is, listen, God loves to save sinners. Romans 5a goes on to say, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we all have failed to do all that God has called us to do. We've failed to be worshipers. And the good news of Christ is that God in His amazing love has sent His Son to, to die in our place and to bear the guilt and the sin and the shame that we were bearing on ourselves. And the punishment for those sins were poured out on Him. And Jesus conquered the death that He was killed on that cross. He rose from the dead. He's alive this morning, and this is the good news that all those who trust in Jesus Christ are totally and freely forgiven of all their sin and all their failure. This is good news. If, if you've walked in and you thought Christianity was just about doing a little better, working a little harder, having a little more integrity, uh, we're actually, we were made to live for God's glory. We have all failed. And God in His amazing love sent His Son to live and die and rise for us so that we, in trusting Him, can be perfectly and completely reconciled to God, justified forever by the work of Christ. Isn't this good news? And it is out of our understanding of this good news that now being so loved being so cared for, being so utterly secure in the arms of the Father that now we live our lives out of worship for God. Now that is undergirding what this is saying. So you need to understand that to understand properly how we apply this. The good news is not fire insurance to get you out of hell. It is this, that Jesus loves me enough to die to save me. He loves me enough to live, to guide me. This is His Word to me. I will submit myself to it and I will follow Him. And what we're going to see here is that the text of Scripture, which is God's Word to us, shows us that there is a calling on your life in the workplace. What we're going to see also is that Christianity when understood and applied, results in hard work. It results in people being good employees. It results in you and I becoming people that bosses want to hire. They want working for them. In fact, this has not only been noticed by Christians throughout the years as they studied Scripture, that Scripture calls them to a certain kind of work ethic. It's actually been noticed by other uh, people in the world, even sociologists who study the economy. Uh, a particular man uh, over 100 years ago named Max Weber um, was obsessed with finding the effect that religious ideas had on an economy. Uh, he wrote a book that became quite popular in its day called The Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of Capitalism. And the book starts off with this sentence. It says, 
a glance at the occupational statistics of any country of mixed religious composition brings to light with remarkable frequency a situation which has several times provoked discussion in the Catholic press and literature. Namely, the fact that the business leaders and owners of capital, as well as the higher grades of skilled labor, and even more the higher technically and commercially trained personnel of modern enterprises, are overwhelmingly Protestant. Translation. It's been seen that there's a lot of Protestant, there's a good economy because Protestants tend to work hard. They tend to work hard. In fact, you might have heard this phrase, right? Have you heard this? The Protestant work ethic. It's kind of coined by this guy and it's become part of the, the language of our day that people recognize, even in the secular world, that there's something about Protestantism that is the belief in the Bible, the belief in the Gospel, the trust in Christ as the sole Savior of your soul results in a certain kind of work ethic. There are lazy Christians. You might know one. You might be one. But one thing that's true about lazy Christians is it's not their Christianity that's making them lazy. Because if you were to understand Christianity, you would understand that it calls you to a certain kind of ethic in the workplace. And so this is a sermon for those in the workplace. Look at verse 1 with me again. It says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. He talked about widows in chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, how to care for them. He talked about elders, verses 17 to 25, how to care for them. And now he talks about bondservants and something they need to think about is they think about what it means for them to be Christians in their situation. One of the words that we need to understand to understand this text is that word yoke. Let all who are under a yoke. It's not talking about the stuff in the egg. He's talking about that which was used in a normal society of those days where you would put something on your oxen to help it, to be able to help it plow, right? You put this big yoke on, you'd wrap it around its neck, you'd connect it, and this oxen attached to this yoke would work and work and work, and it's pulling something. And that word became a metaphor that's often used in the New Testament. It's a metaphor that's neutral. In other words, it's not negative. It's not negative necessarily to be under a yoke. It's not necessarily positive. It refers to this idea of being under responsibility, having an obligation, submitting to something or someone. It's taking an obligation. It's having responsibility. It's submitting to an authority. That's being a yoke. It's used negatively sometimes, as in the book of Galatians, where the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel, telling them they needed to get circumcised in addition to trusting Christ. And Paul said, hey, you're adding a yoke of slavery to the gospel. Yoke was negative in that sense. But Jesus used it positively when He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's a neutral word. It could be used positively or negatively. And we have to understand that because when Paul is talking to Timothy about what the bondservants are to do, he's not referring to the yoke as some negative situation they're in necessarily. The yoke as bondservants is simply referring to an obligation, a responsibility to submit to an authority over them, to take upon this obligation and then to live underneath it, to bear that weight of responsibility. That's what it meant to be taking on or to be under a yoke as a bondservant. 
That word for bondservant is douloi in the Greek. Could also be translated and is sometimes translated as slave or slaves. Um, And what we get often when we get to certain texts in the Bible that talk about slavery and slaves and masters, one of the difficulties for we as Americans for understanding this is we immediately jump to the slavery that's happened in America a couple hundred years ago. And I want to make clear that was an awful thing that ever happened in our nation. It's a blight on our history. And when we're talking about the slavery that is in the Scripture, this kind of bondservant and these kind of masters, and, and the Bible is often addressing these situations, he's not referring to that He's not referring to what that was. In fact, what the slave system was in the first century was actually a very common and even honorable way of employing yourself. Uh, These people put themselves, sometimes voluntarily, under the yoke of being a bondservant as a way to provide for themselves and their family. In fact, uh, one historian has noted that the population of Pergamum, which was a city in the same region as Ephesus, where Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, had about one-third of their citizens were slaves. It was that common. One out of every three people were in the system of slavery. Often, it wasn't oppressive. The system wasn't oppressive. Of course, you had some masters that wanted to oppress their slaves, but that wasn't the system's problem. It was that person's problem. Most slaves enjoyed some relative peace and comfort in their employment. And they saw it as a good opportunity for them to provide for themselves and their family. They had relative prosperity. They were able to start and manage small businesses. Uh, Often they had seats at the table with their family. Uh, Often they could even get involved in some minor governmental roles. And so slavery is not often what we think about when we think about slavery. When he's writing to slaves, he's writing to a certain class of people that were in an interesting situation where they had masters, they, had, they were bond servants, they considered them slaves, they had a yoke of responsibility, but it wasn't this oppressive system uh, abusing the, the slaves. It wasn't that then. Often that, that, that could happen, but that wasn't a problem with the system. It was a problem with the people in the system in their hearts. So he talks about the douloi, the, the bond servants, the slaves, and their responsibility to hold a yoke. Now he also uses another, pers- or another word to describe masters here, despotos. You might understand in that word or hear it even in the Greek, despot. Someone who had this kind of sovereign right to have authority over a certain thing. That was what the master was. This was someone who was an individual with a right to command, a right to rule, a right to say, go, and he would go or come and he would come. The the, 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 the despotos and the douloi had this kind of arrangement where the master would often help them, employ them, even give them opportunity. And it was the bondservant's responsibility to submit to the yoke of that master's will. We get a little bit of a picture of this in Luke chapter 7 with the centurion. Almost every time in the New Testament when you encounter a centurion, they're honorable, noble people. This particular centurion, obviously a centurion, had a hundred people under his authority. And this centurion is an honorable man. He understands something so special about Jesus. He doesn't feel that he has the right to even invite Jesus under his own roof. And so he has people kind of meet him in the middle and and they talk. And the, the, the centurion says this, which gives us a good picture of what this kind of bondservant and master relationship was like. He said this, I too am a man set under authority 
with soldiers under me. And listen to this. He says, I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, that was the kind of relationship that a despotos, a master, had with his doulos, his slave. He could say, come, and he would come. He would say, go, and he would go. He would say, do, and it would be done. It was the responsibility of that person who was a bondservant to respond to the wishes of the master. Now, it could be difficult. You can imagine that, a human nature that doesn't like to be set under authority. It could be difficult. And sometimes it could even become confusing if your master was a Christian. If your master got saved, and you've been this the subject to him all your life, you might start to go, huh, we're brothers now. You could even cozy up to him. You could start to you know, get, change that relationship. Yeah, oh, you don't really need to work me that hard. We're brothers now. And sometimes even, there would be slaves that would be so enamored with their freedom in Christ, they're free from sin, that they would also think that they can be free from their master and they'd run away. And they'd, they'd upset the, the structure that they had upset and break the contract that they were under. And they would set, uh, they'd have all kinds of issues. And so Paul, writing to this kind of scenario, there's a bunch of slaves in Ephesus. There's a, imagine a bunch of slaves in the church to the degree that he has to deal with the issue. And so he's telling them, here's how you work. Here's how you honor your despotos. Here's how you honor your master. Now friends, this has clear connections to your life, right? Especially those of you who've signed up for some sort of job and under some contractual arrangement, you have a despotos, you have a master, and you are their doulos, and you are there to do what they ask you to do. Go if they say go. Get it done what they say get done. You've signed yourself up for that kind of work. And so there's a very specific message for these people. How do you work? Ask yourself that. How, how, do you, how do you work? What about you? Are you among the people that are stressed out? The people who want to hit your coworker in the face? <laughs> you go to work unengaged? Do you see this is the spiritual side of your life? And that is the non-spiritual side of your life? Are you the back-talking employee, mocking your master behind your backs? It was common in the literature of the day that Paul was writing in the, in the, in the shows and the plays and the comedies that were put out there and the actors would get up there and, and often in one of the scenes there would be the arrogant talking back slave and he was there for comic relief and he'd do his work uh, poorly behind the back of the master. He'd treat him with contempt. He'd say things about him when he wasn't looking. He'd get his work done but he had no heart, no zeal. That was a, a common figure and it's almost like Paul has this in mind as he's addressing the people. What do you like when you work? What do you like when you work? What kind of employee are you? Uh, when you get to work, what kind of worker are you? So I want to highlight two principles from the text that, that we ought to apply to our lives to enable us to be better, more God-honoring workers where God has us. Here's our first point. We regard our employers as worthy of all honor. 
It's right from the text. We regard, if, if you're a Christian and you're thinking, how do I redeem my Monday to Friday, my nine to five? How do I do this in such a way where God is honored and, and I'm given a platform for my faith? I'm not blaspheming the name of God. I'm not causing it to be reviled. How do I do that? Here's step one, what Paul has for us. You regard your employer as worthy of all honor. He, he doesn't say... Pick it if he's unfair. Protest if he, if he crosses you. He doesn't say, rise up against the unjust master. In fact, there's no qualifications for this command. It's not as if the master needs to get to a certain level of respectability for you to respect him or a certain measure of honor for you to honor him. It's not you give a little bit and then I can give you some. It's regardless, there's, there's no conditions attached. Regard your master as worthy of all honor. Honor them. In fact, it's even stronger language than just honor them. You can almost imagine someone saying, I don't think he's worthy of honor. But okay, I'm supposed to honor him, so I'll honor him. But he's actually not even saying that. He's getting to right to the heart of your employment and why you work. He's saying, consider them. You see that? Consider them or regard them as worthy of all honor. In other words, change the way you look at the one who's employing you. Consider them in a new light. Regard them in a new way. If you've only thought of them as some tyrant that you got to just buckle up under and you got to just do the work and grit your teeth. I don't want to honor this person because this person doesn't deserve my honor. What Paul is saying is a kind of corrective and it really does cause us to give ourselves a little heart check, doesn't it? you got to change the attitude. In other words, don't run away. Don't protest. Don't pick it. Don't get violent with these people. What you do is change your own attitude and start regarding them, considering them, is worthy of all honor. Not because necessarily... They've earned it. But because God has put you here. This is where God has you. There's no conditions. Honor them. Consider them worthy of all honor. It reminded me, studying this, of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, where, where a radical statement is made about honor, where, where Peter says, honor the emperor. You say, if you're, you're, you're getting the, the letter of 1 Peter, if you're in the first century, you get that letter, you, you read that line, honor the emperor, you go, you go who? You're talking about Nero? <laughs> you want me to honor Nero? That's the guy who's the emperor right now. You, you're talking about me honoring this guy who's bloodthirsty, wants to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth, Nero? You want me to honor him? You want me to honor that guy? That's what Peter was saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Honor him. Honor your despotos. Honor your master. And for the people who might have thought that, well, he doesn't need to get as much honor because I'm his brother in Christ if they're believing. He says, wait a second. Uh, those of you who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You see that? If your boss is a believer, work even harder because you love him more. You have a deeper commitment. You have a different kind of love that's connecting you with your believing boss. So work even harder. You say, well, what does it mean to honor? What would that look like practically? Uh, it's interesting to notice that Paul makes it clear here. If you, you put some pieces together, you can see it in verse 1. Regard them as worthy of all honor. 
And then he contrasts that in verse 2 with a disrespect. So to not honor them would be to disrespect them. And then he says that at the end of verse 2, rather, they must serve all the better. Do you see that? They must serve all the better. Don't respect that, disrespect them. Don't disrespect them. Serve all the better. What does it mean to honor your employer? Work hard. Serve well. Be a really good servant under your despotos, under your master, under your employer. Honor them by being a really hard, really good, really honorable, have a lot of integrity, and do your work that way. My dad was a, a man of common sense. Um, and he used to always tell us kids growing up, show up on time and work hard and you'll be better than half the workforce. <laughs> Sadly, experience has proven him right. It's not easy to find someone who can show up on time and work hard on a consistent basis. Now, obviously, that's one way to honor your employer. It's part of being Christian. It's part of the way you honor your Lord is by honoring your master or your boss or your employer. You can't separate that. You can't put that in a different room and act as if it has nothing to do with your worship. If you're a student in here, right now your employers are your teachers. And your job is to get educated and to study and to work hard. This has application for you. I can imagine a young man, he's at church on time, he's reading his Bible, he's got all the theology books and he's reading through them, he's got a prayer life, he journals, he's got all the spiritual disciplines, and he shows up late to work, is sluggish on the job, the work he does is shoddy. He taps out early. He wastes his boss's time. And yet he so dichotomized his life, he thinks he's a spiritual giant because he's read some books. But you can't divide these things in Scripture. They're never divided. He addresses all of them as if they're worship because they are. And so the way you worship is not just what we're doing here. It's how you're going to live in the rest of the week as well. Serve all the better. Work extra hard. Do it well. Do good work. We tend to think of wickedness in terms of outright rebellion. Outrageous sins. We, we reserve that label wicked for the big ones, right? You know what Jesus called wicked in one of His parables? He called the slothful servant a wicked servant. Maybe wickedness is a little different than how we've conceived it. Maybe it's wicked to surf on the internet when you're supposed to be on the job. Maybe it's wicked to be wasting time when you should be redeeming it. Maybe wickedness looks a little bit more like procrastination, living on borrowed time that you haven't promised yet. Jonathan Edwards says it as bluntly <laughs> as possible, slothfulness in the service of God in His professed servants is as damning as open rebellion. For the slothful servant is a wicked servant and shall be cast into outer darkness among God's open enemies. He's, he's citing exactly Matthew chapter 25, verses 26 to 30. Wickedness can take the form of idleness in the job. I mean, think of the Proverbs. You read through the Proverbs? I mean, Proverbs just 
picks on the sluggard. <laughs> you almost start to feel bad for the guy. I mean, the, the Proverbs just have a field day with the sluggard. Uh, listen to this. He's almost making fun of him. He goes in chapter 26, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. See, the sluggard's making excuses because he doesn't want to get to work on time. <laughs> listen to this one. As a door turns on his hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than even... Ten men who could answer him sensibly. I mean, he won't even listen to you, the sluggard. He won't even learn from you. Proverbs 10.26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke in the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. If you've ever been in an employer situation and you've hired someone and that someone turned out to be a sluggard, you've felt this. It feels like you're drinking vinegar, like you're standing at the fire and it's just blowing in your eyes. It's awful. They're not trustworthy. They lack integrity. They won't get the job done. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your money. I mean, Proverbs is just blunt. He goes on to say in Proverbs 18, verse 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. You work lazily. You have a slack hand on the job. You're a brother. You're related to the destroyer. Because your work is so poor that it's part of the downgrade. It's not upgraded anything. Lazy workers are relatives to aggressive destroyers. If you're doing poor work, you're contributing to decline, not production. What do you like as an employer? Sorry, employee, as a worker, as a doulos. How quickly you do the work that's assigned to you? Let's get practical. Are you a procrastinator? Procrastination is presumption. Promising to do work in a future that you have not been promised. Can you be counted on to do your work well? Does your boss rely on you because you are reliable? Do you work in such a way that you honor your employer? Do you cut corners? Do you cheat the company that's paying you to work? And on their dime... You're using the hours for your own selfishness, whatever that might be. This is all to be done before God. This will bring us to our second point here. We worship in our work. Our first point is we consider our masters as worthy of all honor. That's the first way that we work in such a way that honors the Lord. The second way is we are worshiping in our work. I want to draw your attention again to that second line in verse 1 that I drew, I drew your attention to at the beginning of this message, but I want to point out again, so that, I mean, we've got to think about this for a while. I want you to work this way, Paul's saying, I want you to honor him, Paul's saying, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Feel the weight of that for a second. I mean, this entire letter has been about protecting the teaching that God has given the church. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, we've been talking about how Paul is to correct false teachers in chapter 1. Paul, is, or Timothy, is to be clarifying the gospel. That's also chapter 1. P Timothy is to be dis disciplining those who are in unrepentant sin. That's chapter 1. Uh, the church is to be 
corporately praying together, beginning of chapter 2. The church is to have proper gender roles, end of chapter 2. The church is to have qualified leaders, chapter 3. Why? What's the point? So that God is glorified and the truth is preserved for another generation. That the church needs to be structured in such a way so that the truth can be propagated again and again. You get in an unhealthy church and that truth, that gospel that you might say you believe may not last another generation. And so all these things matter for protecting the truth. And so we think about all these things as ways to protect the teaching God has entrusted to the church. But did you consider this? That your work life, the time you're spending not gathered as a church, is also God's ordained means of protecting the truth of the gospel. How you treat your boss, how you go to work, students, how you educate yourself, how you study, the the integrity you have, the effort you put in, the ethic around your work, is all part of God's way of upholding and supporting and protecting and passing on this glorious gospel we believe. So he's saying that, hey, your, your work and the way you work is so serious that it could cause people to revile your God if you do it poorly. It is so urgent that we hear this. Your work and your work ethic is so essential to God's plan that He has tied up His own name, His own reputation into it. That His name, in a sense, is on the line with you in the way you work. And if you do work in a way that honors Him, it upholds His glorious reputation. And if you do work poorly, it reviles it. That word revile in Greek is blasphemetai. You know what word it's related to. Blasphemy. Like, I don't know if there's a more serious word. But the way you work can result in people blaspheming God because they see the way you work and they go, whatever God that guy serves is not a God I want to follow. You could think of it like this. Uh, my, my kids are going through school right now and they're going to go through and uh, it might end up that, that, that the teacher that Emma has is then the teacher that Ella has and then my third daughter, Nora, will have the same one. And if you're a teacher, you've probably experienced this, that if you get a family that's going through and you get one after another after another, you might never meet the parents, but you might get a pretty good idea of what they're like. Right? And if the teacher's going, oh no, we got another Durso kid coming through. (laughs) That might be a problem. My reputation is on the line. They bear my name. They go through and they, what they, how they treat one another, how they honor their teacher or don't honor their teacher. That has to do with me. In the same way, God, our Father, has sent us into the world, into these various workplaces. And the way you work reflects on the Father you have in heaven. It reflects on Him. And listen, if you're a Christian, that's a big deal because you love your Father in heaven. It would grieve you, wouldn't it? It would grieve you if your job, your lack of effort, your shoddy work resulted in people wanting nothing to do with your gospel. That would be a travesty if people looked at you and thought something wrong about God because of the way you worked. 
And so everything you do, you're going into work saying, this is worship. This gives me a platform to draw people to the greatness of my God. John Piper says it this way in the negative. He says, aimless, unproductive Christians contradict the creative, purposeful, powerful, merciful God we love. Friends, work is worship. You are to be worshiping at work. Your work should not lead to others reviling your God, but to others revering your God. Your work should be done so well that you draw attention to it and you point to your creative and good work or good Father who has worked good for you in heaven. I remember having a Christian friend who would say he was a business guy in that world and he would say, I want to be the hardest worker. I want to be the hardest worker in the room. I want to be the hardest worker in the field. I don't think it was driven by a sinful competitiveness. I think it was driven by a desire to honor his Lord and to show off how great his God was. I hope the employers are saying, I want to hire Christians because they'll work hard. They'll have integrity. They'll do the job. See, see, see to, to make work Christian, to make your employment Christian, you don't. You need to open a coffee shop called He Brews. <laughs> you don't need to launch a line of coffee shops called St. Arbucks. Sorry about that one. Or Holy Grounds. You don't need that. You don't need that. What you need to do is to show up with your heart filled with love for God, your Father, in worship, and then to get to work with integrity and effort and zeal and say, I will do this for Him and His glory so that His name isn't reviled, so that His name is revered, so that Christians get a good name in the world. It's a big deal. So when R.C. Sproul was asked by one of his friends, what's the big idea of the Christian life? He responded like, Theologians are sometimes prone to do with a Latin phrase. He said, Coram Deo. What's that mean? What's the big idea of the Christian life? Coram Deo. Well, what does that mean? The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Every hour of your life, God is watching you. God is seeing you. God knows what's happening. And you have this glorious opportunity to live each day under His gaze, worshiping Him. There is worship in the work. It's not mundane. It's not something insignificant. It is an opportunity to give glory and to please your heavenly Father. You're working with the watchful, loving, caring eyes of God upon you. And so every moment you are at work, you can capture the moment, redeem the moment, transform the moment into a moment of sacred worship to the King of glory who deserves it. 
So you think back to that house we talked about at the beginning of the sermon where we tried to divide up our life into all kinds of different rooms. But as a Christian, you know that there's no locking the doors when Jesus is in the house. There's no keeping out signs on the door. You can't say that this is my work life and Jesus, you're not in there. I'll give you the Sundays, but I won't give you the other part. No, no, no. You say to your Lord, who is the Lord of the universe, who cries over all of existence, it is mine. You say to Him, it's yours. It's all yours. My life is yours. My marriage is yours. My kids are yours. My job, it's yours. And I will do it for you. This is not primarily for me. Yes, God provides for me through this job. Yes, God provides for my family through this job. But I have been given this job by God for Him, for His glory. This is for you, God. And it becomes worship. We are living quorum Deo before the face of God. And there is no longer just a place, a single spot we go to worship. We worship at work. We worship in the classroom. We worship when we do the work that God has assigned us. We are the douloi of Christ. We are His servants. We are His slaves. We have submitted ourselves to Him. And we live for His glory. So what does that mean practically? Do good work. Honor your employers. Let your work become another platform that exalts the goodness and the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy, even after hearing a text like this get explained, that we forget when we go from here, we slip back into our normal routines. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the various pressures of the world. It is so easy for us to forget that we have been given opportunity to worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so, Lord, we call upon Your Spirit for help shape our minds, our hearts, our affections. And Lord, may we be the kind of employees that glorify You. And Lord, if our shoddy, undisciplined, or laziness has caused Your name to be reviled, we confess that. We ask for forgiveness. And we trust that You are not done with us and that You will continue to shape and fashion us into the person and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.